Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I don't know if I sound raspy to anyone. I was just uh, jamming music with some friends yesterday, screaming into a microphone a lot. <laughs> I'm not sick. That's why I sound raspy if, if I do. I don't know if that's the case for you or not. Um, ooh, there we go. Welcome. Um, so we got stuck in a bit of a bathroom reno this week, uh, which is fun. We moved into our house in the end of 2008, or well, we bought it at the end of 2008. And let's call it the condition was a bit of a handyman's dream, which can be a lot of fun. But there was one room the former owners had done, the upstairs bathroom, that was actually pretty nice. So we had a nice room, and that was really nice to have. But that was 15 years ago. So more recently, when the tiles started to crack and I started to put duct tape down to keep kids from cutting their feet when they were brushing their teeth, we thought, eh, maybe it's the Lord's timing and we should, you know, get into some of this work. So we had a simple plan, right? Tear up the subfloor of the tile, tear up the floor, and just put down a new subfloor and a nice vinyl. Well, a passable vinyl. I bought it at Costco. So we got a plan, and we got one of those old, like, heavy cast iron tubs, you know, the clawfoot cast iron tubs, so I would have to move it around as I worked, because there was absolutely no hope of getting it out of that room. So move the tub, tear up half the floor, and this is where I learn again that lesson I have learned a hundred times being a homeowner of an old house. You never know what you're going to find. <laughs> and I'm looking in there and I'm thinking, huh, I guess we'll replace all the water lines. So that'll be a fun thing to do. So new water lines, tub, toilet, sink, get that done, cool. You know, feel pretty good about myself. Move the tub, tear it another section. Ooh, nice. I think I'm going to reinforce that beam so that when I put the tub back, it doesn't end up in the dining room. That seems like a fun thing to do. So I get to do that as well. And it just kind of balloons because that's the way it is. And it really was one of those moments where, you know, I could have gone blissfully unaware for the rest of my life not knowing what the floor joists looked like under there. <laughs> I could have been happy. You know, I could have been ignorant and yet content. But sometimes, isn't it better to look? Right? Is, isn't it really better to look and know so that you can get in there and you can do the things you need to do before something catastrophic happens? And that's what we're hoping to do today, is to begin a discussion on, well, what does it look like to look? You know, those things that are in the back of your head, those things that are there that you're kind of ignoring, that maybe you know, maybe you know that there's, it's an old house, and there's some things that maybe we're ignoring and, and we're happy ignoring it, but maybe we should talk about it, and maybe we should look into it a little bit. And that's the hope for this morning. I want to start by looking at a passage which is one of my absolute favorites. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus, and you belong to Christ. Then you are Abraham's seed and offspring, heirs 
according to the promise. There's a lot going on here that I just absolutely love. Like that opening phrase, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. There's some really great stuff happening in the Greek there when it says, you are all. So like really like interesting grammar stuff where what it's really saying is, all of you. Yeah, it's not really a trick. It's just, it's just something that we ignore. You are all. It's such a big, all-encompassing statement that's so, like, all children of God. He goes on to call us heirs, be, meaning that every single person, every, every individual person is that single most important person to God. And that doesn't make sense. It's completely contradictory, but it's beautiful and lovely. Paul uses, like, singular words to make awesome points here. He uses gendered words in ways you might not expect to break down cultural norms. It's an absolutely beautiful passage. And then there's this spot right here. As many of you are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. I don't know about you, but it's kind of hard to, like, see Jesus in what I'm wearing right now. I don't know that's not really what it's talking about, but you know, unless it is. Well, let's try. So I've got, uh, I got my jeans from the thrift store. I should do like a... <laughs> my jeans from the thrift store, t-shirt from the same place, basically. Um, this sweater was a gift from my sister from a fair trade store, because she knows me well, which is always fun. It's my socks. I... I couldn't, for the love of God, tell you where I got my socks from. That's my fault. And then the final unmentionable item, which shall go unmentioned, I guess. <laughs> Might be too late for that. And, and that's what I've got. That's, I mean, again, it's, it's hard to see Jesus in my clothes unless, unless you can. I don't know. What, what do you think? Last time I checked, I wasn't wearing Jesus. I was wearing pants. Unless this is a terrible dream. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. You know, the truth is that I've never cared much about what I'm wearing. Like, I was that kind of kid who just wore whatever my mom bought me up to an embarrassingly late age. And when I even did start to buy my own clothes, I would just simply, you know, walk into the store, whatever store it was, I know, probably Walmart, Ugh, Walmart. I walk in, just grab what I need and go. Not like shoplift from Walmart. I just mean I'm not trying anything on. I would just like get what I need. Like these are, this is a shirt. I need a shirt and I'd leave. My goal from the moment walking in is to leave. It's a quality I maintain and I feel comfortable with that. Because I don't care about fashion. I don't care about my clothes. And, and I was comfortable with that. I got a point here. Because something changed in my life that changed the way that I saw how much I didn't care might have been a problem. I want to give you a bit of a warning because there's going to be a bit of a tone shift here. In 2013, the Rana Plaza in Bangladesh collapsed, killing 1,134 people one of the greatest sweatshop disasters of all time. You may remember this story from the news. Absolute incredible tragedy. This building what was a complex, built with a very specific purpose. 
Um, now, they call it a building collapse, but there was a lot of factors that were going on here. One being that the building was built without any permits or permissions. Two, the building was built on a former pond. The fifth to eight floors had no structural walls. I don't even know how that works. Non-existent fire escapes, non-working fire suppression systems, locked doors, boarded up windows, made it nearly impossible for the thousands of workers trying to escape to get out, leaving 1,134 dead and countless wounded. This was a building made for the highest possible cost-saving measure. That's what it's purpose. The cheapest possible building to house the cheapest possible labor to make the cheapest possible goods. For, for us, in the aftermath of this disaster, there were details that came out. 1,400 survivors were surveyed, and over 200 of them admitted to being minors. Stories came out of children 13, 12, suffering violence, being forced to work 14-hour days. Quintessential sweatshop work. This is not just oppression. This was modern-day slavery. Groups like Amnesty International define slavery today as profiting from the oppression of others. It's a good definition. Another one I've seen is people being forced to work through violence. Lots of different ways you can define it, all of which may very well be true. And the thing that all the organizations agree on is that this is an incredibly prominent and prevalent problem today. In 2022, groups like Walk Free, the International Labor Organization, the International Organization for Migration, estimated that there are 49.6 million people living in modern-day slavery today. Nearly 50 million. And this is what's of interest to me, is that in 2013, when that building collapsed, that number was 29.8 million. 20 million fewer people than today. So in the aftermath of that disaster, there was outrage and outcry. Nations made promises. Companies made promises. People made commitments. There was protests in the street. There was a cultural reckoning with the idea that this, this industry existed for our benefit. There was so much anger that we let the industry almost double in less than 10 years. That's what happened. But I don't care about what I'm wearing, right? <laughs> I'm not the fashionable guy. I, I, I don't care that much about my clothes. So this isn't a problem. But that is the problem. I came to the point where I realized that I don't care about what I'm wearing. That's the problem. I didn't care. I wasn't clothed in Christ. I was clothed in impression and injustice. And I was angry, angry that inspectors and companies existed that didn't do anything for those kids. I was angry with the people who let that building become so unsafe. I was angry that people would inflict that on others 
just to make money. And most of all, above everything else, I was angry at myself because I knew, I knew what was happening. Just like so many of us do and did. We knew what was going on and we pushed it to the back of our heads and thought, it's not going to be my problem or there's these reasons I don't need to do anything about it. It's a hard thing. So my repentance included admitting that I had done wrong. Like, I didn't invent capitalism. I didn't invent the fast uh, fashion industry. I, I wasn't profiting in millions of dollars, but I had participated in it. And I had to admit that I had done wrong, I had done something, and I had participated in this evil. And then secondly, I had to give grace to myself as I move forward in my imperfection as I try to do better. And that commitment that I was going to try to do better in my imperfection was to never again support the sweatshop industry. And are the choices that I made arguable? Yeah. <laughs> Have I done things perfectly? No. But here's what I basically came up with. One, wearing the things that I have to utter ruin and being grateful for it. My wife was pointing out the cuffs of my sweater a little earlier today. Number two, always looking for the fair trade option if I do need to buy something new. And a little note on that as well. Um, if you see something that says ethically sourced, that can mean lots of things. If you see something that says natural, that means nothing at all. If you see something that says registered fair trade, that means something concrete and specific. And the third thing is thrift stores are pretty good. <laughs> Although I'll add a caveat to that as well, that um, in more recent years, as thrifting has become more popular, well, let's just say that not all thrift stores are created equal. And, and that's it. That's, we'll call it one of, my repentance stories. One of the things that I've done, seen in myself, and tried to change. And you know what one of the most challenging thing is about talking about this particular part? Is talking about it without coming across like I'm judging everyone. Because <laughs> that's not my goal here. I'm not trying to like make anyone uncomfortable. I, I, I would assume that possibly some of you are, Maybe that's okay. I, I don't know. It's not my goal. It's not my goal to give you, like, another thing. Like, okay, this is another thing I have to worry about that, that I impossibly can't do all of these endless amounts of things. But I think that it is worth, as a community, to talk about this anyway, to talk about these things and imagine new things and other things that we may be pushing to the back, that we may be pushing to the edges and not talking about because... It's not convenient. It's important to reflect and consider because everything is part of a system. Everything is part of an industry. Everything is intertwined and interconnected and complicated and almost impossible to understand kinds of ways. And we are a part of it. We are living in it. We are in depth in it. In fact, I think uh, Jesus spoke to this in Matthew uh, 22. 
I gotta find that again. In the story about um, a coin and some taxes. So let's have a fun time talking about taxes. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a Daenerys, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Just one little point before I go on. Um, the end says they were amazed, and so they left him. Now, it is rare that I read scripture and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> amazed. But it is important to look at that and think, oh, something amazing happened here. Something big. One of my favorite things about this particular story is the coin itself. Probably a Tiberian shekel, which was a denarius, um, which was a coin that had a picture of Caesar, Tiberius, on one side, his profile, and your standard coin, just like we have today, and an inscription on it that said, the divine Caesar, like the god Caesar. On the other side was a picture of the Roman goddess Pax, who is the Roman god of peace, the Pax Romana, you might have heard of, the peace of Rome, which is an ironic thing in and of itself, right? Peace of Rome or else. It's kind of the way they did things. So there is this coin that was literally declaring Caesar to be God, and on the other side, a foreign God. And they hand this to Jesus, and they say, what should we be doing with this? This coin, this, what you might call an engraven image, a piece of metal that's been formed in the shape of a foreign God, so that people can put it in their pocket, think it's valuable, and walk around all day with their little idol in their pocket, feeling its importance and its weight and its presence right there with them. There's incredible stuff happening there. And it's one of those uh, great ironies as well, because Caesar, like, gets the mines going. Caesar gets the metal. Caesar um, mints these coins. Caesar puts his face on the coin. Caesar will distribute the coin to the entire empire. And then Caesar says, this coin has this much value, and you can all value the coin at this much. And then we go, ooh, it's mine. <laughs> this is my little coin. It's my thing. When really, it's part of the ethos. It's the only, we only has value because we agree it has value. It is Caesar's. And that's where that famous line comes from, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. 
Because what is Caesar's is these systems. There is this complicated, big, intertwined way that the world works, and we are a part of it, and we are in it. And Jesus recognizes that, that we are a part of this world, and he also says to give to God what is God's. And there's a question there that comes in, because if what holds the image of Caesar is what belongs to Caesar, then what holds the image of God is what belongs to God. And there's something lovely happening there where Jesus is constantly trying to remind us that we live in these systems, we live in this world, we, we have the way things are, but he's trying to give us to remember what holds God's image in priority above, that we must take what holds the image of God, which is us, and put it above the way things are and the way things work. So we're in this series now about repentance. I like the words repentance and repair put together because I think it gives a better, a much better idea of what repentance is, which is something that's to be healing. And I wanted to finish off this morning by giving a few final thoughts on repentance that I think are relevant to this idea of the, the hidden things pushed aside that we may be ignoring. And the first of those is, I think that repentance is communal. And I don't think we often think about it that way. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we have these ideas uh, constantly that the nations need to repent, right? This nation needs to repent. That nation needs to repent. Edom needs to repent. Uh, Nineveh needs to repent, and of course, Israel needs to repent over and over again. Israel has to repent. Israel has to repent. The ones who are writing that story, right, they're about themselves, they're agreeing, we have to repent, we have to repent. Repentance on a national level. So why is it that we get here in, into today's world, and we think about repentance, and we think, yeah, um, I don't know, Frank needs to repent, now, I don't know if there's a Frank here. I'm sorry if there is. I just pull a name at random. If there's a Frank here, I don't know if he did anything. I don't know him. We make repentance this individual thing, this, this, this confession thing. I need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent. When the Bible talks about repentance on a national level, more often than anything, I think repentance is supposed to be communal. It's supposed to be something that we do. And when you think about the evil in the world, the systems that we're living in, then this idea that we can repent as a community makes a lot more sense. And in that, it's something that is less condemning. It is something that we come alongside each other to do. It's something where we don't repent and, and force someone to change. It's something where we come beside each other, alongside each other, and say, hey, we're doing this together. Repentance becomes a communal act of encouraging and empowering each other to, to be different. It's like, hey, I, I found out this thing, and, and we can do this, and I can help you with this, and I, I learned that. We can, we can be here with and help each other alongside the journey of repentance together. That's something that I would love to be a part of. A community that decides to change its mind, to change what it's believed together, and to move further towards justice. 
and hope. The second idea is that grace is inextricably linked with repentance. Oh, one more thought, sorry, on the, the communal idea is that another advantage of the communal act of repentance is that it's a bit of an equalizer. Because when we start to talk about these kind of injustices and what we can do to repair it, there's always that question of how it comes inequably to certain people, especially if it's financial injustice. To those people who don't have as much time or don't have as much resources, it's suddenly a question, well, can they contribute? And the answer is, well, it's not on them, it's on us. This is something that we are doing. It's something that we are trying to improve, not to make one person perfect out of the community, but for all of us to do better. Okay, now the idea of grace and repentance. Because I think that repentance... <clears throat> Sorry, again, too much screaming into a microphone. Grace and repentance are inextricably linked because we are imperfect beings. Now, you may be a little bit like me in that you were raised in or taught that repentance is something that you do, and now I'm perfect, right? I'm good. I, like, all my mistakes are behind me, and I can move on now in my perfection. And I don't think that that's the point. I think that the recognition that I am imperfect and I move on in my perfection is an acceptance that that grace comes to me and is needed as I move forward, which means that if I do imperfect things as I move on, if I make a commitment to buy all fair trade clothes and I fail, I can have grace for myself and keep moving forward and not have to be perfect in that change. And if we link that in with the communal nature of repentance as well, then it means that we can have grace for each other that we can have grace and forgiveness for the mistakes and the way we mess up while encouraging and empowering each other to change. The last thing I wanted to do was a bit, of a, a bit of an experiment because I know that the word repentance can be a very difficult one for many people. I, it is one of those words that we're trying in this series a bit to try to redefine reclaim a little bit, re-understand, I just coined that, I think, off the top of my head, re-understand what this word may be for our community. But what I wanted to do is just try to sum up what I'm trying to say without using the word repentance <laughs> to see what we can get at. So I can imagine a church that is willing to admit that we've done wrong and grieve in the wrong that we've participated in even when we didn't know the evil was there. A community that instead of condemning each other for what we've participated in, encourages and empowers each of us to do better and extends grace for each other in our imperfect attempts to turn to good. I, I can't stand up here and be the guy who's got the answers on how we can solve all the big systematic problems of the world. I wouldn't imagine. All I can do is say up, stand up here and say that we can't just be okay with it. We can't just be okay with the way things are. And I think that with grace and community, we can rely on each other to make a positive difference. But let's take a moment 
And I'll pray, and then we can head out. Thank you. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time, your presence here. Ask that you move in our hearts, move in our minds, for us to give grace to each other, for us to give grace to ourselves, to look in this world and to continue to see your image in the face and the eyes of everyone seen and unseen. And we can live for your love and justice. Amen.